Welcome to Magnet Classics, where we take a deep dive into the influential albums the magazine has championed over the years. I'm your host, Hobart Rowland. Episode 2, The Real Story Behind Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend. Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend did fairly well by music industry standards. It peaked at number one on the Heat Seekers chart in 1992, and the title track made it to number four on the Modern Rock chart and number ten on Mainstream Rock. The album's lead-off track, Divine Intervention, was a number 23 Modern Rock hit. Granted, that's nowhere near the massive numbers Nirvana's Nevermind and U2's Octung Baby logged that same year. But you have to realize that we're talking about a quirky power pop album that almost didn't find its way to listeners. Prior to Girlfriend, Sweet was less than an unknown commodity. He was a liability. With a pair of glossy, nondescript late 80s albums that tanked commercially and critically. The vibe surrounding Sweet was so toxic that Zoo Entertainment, the label that finally took a chance on Girlfriend, pretty much spun the album as Sweet's debut. And in fact, it sounds like nothing that came before. From Sweet or anyone else, its edgy, honest beauty set the tone for a string of great albums, including 1993's Altered Beast, 1995's 100% Fun, and 1999's Phil Spector-inspired In Reverse. Thirty years after its October 1991 release, Matthew Sweet chats at length about Girlfriend from his home in Nebraska. I got my record deal in the spring of... 1985 with uh, Columbia Records. And it was like a development deal. But my NR guy said, you know, you're definitely going to get to make a record, you know, at the end of this period. But they wanted to give me uh, some money for, you know, getting an eight track and being able to sort of expand my demo making ability at home. Sweet was just 19 when he got married. By 1989, the couple had moved to Princeton, New Jersey from New York City, but his wife became restless in Princeton and eventually moved back to New York. Princeton was where the 
a lot of the girlfriend writing happened. Um, it was, if not all, mostly written, I would say, after um, my first wife moved out. So I was kind of, you know, going through a lot of different feelings about it, you know. And then some of it was written after we fully split up. So you have that mix of songs on Girlfriend show many sides, you know, of the emotions of falling in love with somebody, falling out of love, all these, you know, different things. I'd had my sort of demo room up in this little... uh kind of place that the house was built in like 1780. So it was a real, real old place on a uh, near uh, Princeton Battlefield State Park. So it was one of the houses that had been there kind of forever. And it had this little uh, loft place kind of in the back of it that was, uh, I'm sure, where they stored food stuff and that kind of thing for the winter, you know, back in the 1700s. And uh, I had been up in there making my demos. It was like my little music room. Once I was sort of living alone there, I brought down my gear into one of the main rooms of the house. I mean, it was a small house. And I set up uh, a live drum kit that I had. And uh, I just thought, I'm going to try playing drums on some demos. It was something I'd kind of never really done. I'd had this drum kit since I was a teenager, but I'd always been using some kind of drum machines or programming on computers to do the drums, you know, and everything else I played. So I started trying to play drums kind of on my demos and it wasn't very good, but it made it kind of more fun and it gave it a slightly different vibe to it. Uh, Russell Carter, who had become my manager then. He'd been my lawyer for many years, since uh, probably 1984, uh, when I was still in Athens. And he became a manager uh, because the uh, Indigo Girls were sort of blowing up then. And so I asked him if he'd manage me. I'd been through two managers. And I sent, sent him some of the demos that I did playing drums and uh and he said this is great this sounds like uh neil young and crazy horse i just didn't know that much about neil young you know i remembered sort of heart of gold being on the radio i remember i had a friend when i was real little that really liked that song kid up the street and i just didn't know much about him i knew he was canadian um and uh you know i really grew up more on uh, a lot of British new wave punk invasion sort of stuff. And uh, I just didn't know a lot about kind of more classic rock. Um, and so uh, Russell sent me some tapes of, I guess they would have been cassettes then, of uh, some Crazy Horse stuff. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I love it. You know, so it kind of became a, little bit of an influence feedback loop kind of thing happening uh, from him hearing those demos. And I got what he meant, you know, about, and it really, and I think it really was finally doing it organically that 
brought my music to a place where it really felt more real and I felt kind of more uh, like myself. My friends, uh, uh, Fred Marr, uh, Lloyd Cole at the time, um, was uh, really supportive of, uh, of my uh, demos and really, you know, gave me a lot of confidence. Lloyd Cole. He, he would write incredibly quickly. He would not just write like a song in a day. He'd write like three or four songs in the same day. And, and, and I mean, from, for me, if I've got a song in my head, I can't possibly get another one in my head the next, the same day. I just don't, just, you know, it's just, just, I don't know how I, I, I was, I was kind of in awe, uh, but he, but, but yeah, he was, he was less meticulous is not the right word. He just, th there were times when he cared about getting the lyric dead right, but I think he was just more into just getting the vibe of the song right straight away. Girlfriend, the song, he was singing Good Friend, and I think he was going to call the song Good Friend. And I was like, you're not talking about a good friend in the song at all. You're talking about a girlfriend. Just call it Girlfriend. It's a better title. Lloyd Cole also weighs in on the Winona Ryder infatuation that fueled another key girlfriend track. I think we were all a little obsessed by Winona at the time. Heather's was a kind of phenomenon of film. And we, were, and we were still young enough. We weren't, I mean, Matthew was a little bit younger than me. We, we, we still connected with, with, with youth culture and, and, and Winona was a phenomenon. Uh, and, and, and again, um, he, was, he did the same thing with, with that song. He didn't have, he didn't have a, a decent type title for it. I did have, that for a little while, he, yeah, he did, he did, if I if I if I tried to bully him into doing something, he would do it for a while. You know, I uh, I think I I held seniority over him for about six months, uh, and then he was off and running. And he got me to play guitar on the record a little bit. Really, I think just as a token gesture, because there was nothing that I could play on the guitar that he couldn't or couldn't play. Both Cole and Sweet worked with producer Fred Marr on their earlier solo releases. So he was a natural choice for girlfriend. Mar notes that Sweet actually had his own ideas for recording. Originally, he wanted to record it in his house. We were doing all this research, finding you know if we, what how we would get equipment there. Or if we, would we have to rent a, like a mobile truck or something like that? But <clears throat> and something where we were going to stay. And at some point, he got. Um, he just got cold feet about it. He was worried he was going to piss off his neighbors and that things wouldn't go very well. So, um, so we did the next best thing, which was work at Axis Studios, which is a very tiny studio with a small recording space. My first record for AM, it had a lot of the ingredients. It had uh, Richard Lloyd, it had Robert Quine. It had Fred and I, you know, um, but we were still kind of programming the drums and that made it different. So this time we were going to, you know, use use uh, real drums. It sort of left the kids in the candy store with Fred and I and Jim Rondinelli. I met Jim. Uh, actually, I was on tour and 
opening up for uh, Amy Mann. And uh, I met Jim. He was an engineer at Paisley Park. And I went into Paisley Park and uh, made some kind of a demo there. Like he, he set it up for us to do, Jim. And uh, so that's how I met Jim. And I remember I went in there. It was real basic. I think me on acoustic guitar. And then I, I believe John Bryan, who was playing with Amy, came along and he played some kind of slide or something, you know, on it slide guitar uh, on this demo and then uh it turned out that jim drove me to our next gig jim drove me down to iowa i think we were playing a show around somewhere around clear lake iowa i believe and uh, jim was from iowa so we'd done this thing in the studio and we drove down there and, you know, I heard some of his uh, things he was doing with the Jayhawks, who I would later do a lot of touring with. And uh, and he he was just kind of the first engineer engineer that I knew who was just, you know, American and younger. I mean, I was good friends with this guy, Dave Allen, who worked on some of both my uh, first couple of records, including all of the second one. Um, but I didn't really have a young friend in the U S who was an engineer. Um, and so it just kind of worked out with Jim and Fred and I, um, we, uh, you know, started, uh, planning. I remember Quine brought in some birds records. We would listen to the cassettes. There was one track on, I think five D that he wanted me to hear where there were drums, separate drum kit on both sides. Cause he knew I was interested in trying to put the drum kit on one side. You know, now we know now, and I don't know if I knew this at the time or not, honestly, but we know now that those Beatles records with the crazy hard panning, you know, they, they weren't even there for those mixes. They were, they cared about the mono mixes still. And it was just the stereo things were done as an afterthought at the time. So a lot of the ways they were mixed was more because people didn't know what to do yet in making stereo records, you know. But to me, I thought, oh, that's a cool artistic thing. Girlfriend engineer Jim Rondinelli. Axis Studios 254 West 54th Street had just opened up a second studio. And there's a funny thing about this, right? So it w they just opened up the second room. We were one of the first clients in there. We were splitting our two weeks on, two weeks off with CNC Music Factory while they were making Gonna Make You Sweat. And Madonna was doing Vogue upstairs. So it was like really a, a charmed time for that studio. So we're in the building next to Studio 54 in the office building there. I don't think the studio exists in the form that it was in now. Um, in fact, that you know, I know it doesn't. Um, but it was a really great place. It was like an executive office, walnut paneled room for the control room with a nice view of the Hudson and the neighbor's apartment across the street. Um, and uh, 
a small isolation room that they had literally just built that was about the size of my office here. So maybe it's like 10 by 12 or something. It was the drum room was really small mm-hmm. and it had plywood walls with rough cut wood strips. Um, and it just had a really great, warm, rich sound to it. Often it was just Fred Marr on drums and Sweet on guitar recording the basic tracks. It was just the two of us playing at the, at the same time. Um, so he would give me cues. He had a microphone too, so he could sing and, and or shout out cues of like, drum fill here! Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's how we did it. And then basically when we thought we got something good, the next step was he would add bass to it. And if he felt like he was able to do it, like if the groove felt right and the pocket felt right, that was it. That was our, that was our take. And then we just build on it from there. On Evangeline, um, Richard Lloyd was playing the lead guitar on it. Um, we used uh, a Japanese jazz master, uh, Fender jazz master that I had for him to play the lead on it and um i would sit there and play the those uh, repetitive lick parts like just like that thing and then i would give him the guitar and he would like do the leads you know (laughs) um because it was just kind of it i learned very quickly and early on that if there was something that i wanted to be exactly like I played it, it was really a huge waste of time to try to get someone to learn exactly what I did. It was just easier to do what I did and then let them be free with what they did. Jim Rondinelli was blown away by the dueling guitars of Lloyd and Quine. There were so many days. If I, I feel like it was like, somebody would have felt if they were recording Coltrane for the same first time or something. Like I, I just felt like it was like that. It was, I, in fact, I, I referred to those guys as like my own personal version of Coltrane. And we had a similar methodology for the way we captured both of them. So um, they'd, they'd come in, they'd listen to the track. Um, we'd do a couple of play, uh, play downs. And then we'd take usually three, about five takes, which we comp into one master take. And when I, and I was looking not to, I was looking for the stuff that kind of in a twisted harmonic way as we assembled the solos would make, uh, you know, I said it a lot of jazz as a kid. Anything that you heard on that record, Matthew did a demo of that was pretty elaborate on his eight track before we received it, or even sometimes that eight, those eight tracks re- recordings became uh, a, a part of the production process for this record, particularly when it came to vocal arrangements and and you know how vo- Matthew would rehearse his rehearse his vocals at home. I don't know. We would probably do background vocals first a lot of times sometimes not um i was always putting off singing the real vocal as long as i could because i was just the least confident about that part you know um i think that once i went out and toured a lot for a girlfriend that that changed my singing confidence a whole lot you know 
I just had never really done it a lot every day. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so uh, that that kind of got me more in shape. But I was, you know, a little more reserved probably when we made Girlfriend. But it kind of, even though I was a little bit sort of stilted in the vocals, it kind of like fit with the way the record sounded and gave it a little more of a kind of a deadpan kind of thing about it that somehow worked. Fred Marr. We didn't work with any of the um, technologies and things that were the flavor of the day um, back in the 80s, drum machines, all that. I mean, Matthew had already done albums with drum machines uh, prior. and he just wanted to uh, to just do a complete about face and just go purely live instruments, no keyboards, no reverb, no nothing, uh, and and limitations like technical limitations. Like we were we were um, mixing on the same console that we recorded on back then. Everybody would you know if you go to mix, you go to a studio that had a gigantic what we call SSL consoles or solid state logic. And we just didn't want any of that um, at all. It was just a, it was just a mandate for the record. And I think the mandate is why it, it, it holds up. Jim Rondinelli. When I heard Earth the Record before, I thought here's this amazing songwriter who's got a lot of stuff to tell. And there are all these great players on this record, but they're buried under a flurry of like, tricky digital effects that made it feel real dated. So what I wanted to do from the time we set up the record was to kind of almost reverse the figure and ground relationship between Matthew's singing and in writing and in how it was presented. So rather than having Matthew buried back under, you know, heavy digital reverb, dry and upfront vocals, loud guitars. So loud guitars were sort of an aberration from the scene. It was starting to happen in indie rock, but it was definitely not happening at the major labels. We kind of inverted a lot of the rules, no digital effects, and there are none whatsoever on the record. There's no digital reverb on the record. There's no reverb on the record on anything. Um, There is one minute of tape slap um, in divine intervention and, and it's literally just makes a quick appearance and disappears and that's it for the record. Otherwise it's all dry. Um, loud guitars, dry drums, and the sounds of the room and, and people recording in a space. And then finally, in those days, my philosophy on making records was very much like the record's gonna be played in a room anyway. So we don't need to be adding extra room to the room. No guitar pedals. So literally every guitar that you hear is like guitar. And this was like another one of the rules. No Fender Precision Bass, no digital reverb, no digital processing, no effects. All Hofner Beetle Bass, because we like the big fat sound of the Hofner. You know, whether you, you hear it on Beatles records or you hear it on reggae records, um, that was a big component of it. Um, um, you know, judicious use of of tubes when recording and we worked monday through friday we didn't work on weekends and um, the first batch we got three songs done second batch we got five songs done third batch we got all the rest done 
and we ended up canceling the fourth batch because we figured we had enough to make the record. Jim was sometimes maybe a little frustrated with the rest of us playing around, you know, because I was just like always smoking weed and hanging out and talking and Fred's friends would come and hang out. And, you know, we were like part of being in the studio was having fun and kind of, you know, feeling like we owned the place or, <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, you know, Jim was more, a little more of a serious worker, you know, kind of than the rest of us were, even though I, I was serious and I was on top of what we were doing. I mean, but it was about still just fun for me. It was the magic of kind of getting to hear stuff back after we played it. We uh, assembled it in an early version of Pro Tools and it wasn't, all analog the chain you know and that was you know when pro tools was just kind of starting out it was only stereo at that point and fred was into that and knew about it and that's how we like made backwards pieces and things in the album is actually flipping them around in a very early uh version of pro tools instead of cutting the tape out and putting it backwards you know um so you know that I just add that really to illustrate that we weren't super purist about, you know, uh, some old aesthetic, but it was more just uh, the things I liked. And I was probably just kind of trying to be more like what I liked, you know. Meanwhile, things were coming unraveled for Sweet outside the studio. While we were making the record, uh, Polygram purchased the label and my A&R guy was out. And uh, so it was just kind of a limbo. We finished the record and there wasn't really any ally there that I could easily, you know, uh, count on to care about it, sort of, you know. And it was actually a guy named David Anderley who you would know from sort of Beach Boys, Van Dyke Parks era, a guy who was around and friends with all those guys in the 60s, he called us and he really liked the record. And he said, you should take this record and sell it to somebody who's going to do something for it, you know? And uh, so it was weird, you know, because he really seemed to honestly like it. And he got kind of some of the little weirdnesses and things about the record you know i think he really got the record but then we were sort of left in limbo anyway you know so uh it was around for probably six eight nine months and uh we almost got a lot of labels to pick it up young a r people wanted to buy it their bosses wouldn't let them really. And uh, so finally, you know, it ended up uh, with this little startup label, Zoo Entertainment, um, through BMG. And they said, you know, we want to buy it. And then after we said, okay, we're going to sell it to you, then they said, we, we, never mind, we don't want to buy it. So it was like, just we were really at the end of our rope. In the months before Girlfriend's October 1991 release, a devoted group of industry people embraced the album. 
which had the title Nothing Lasts. Lloyd Cole. He only considered changing it, I believe, when Tuesday Weld, she originally agreed to be on the album sleeve. And then when she heard the album was going to be called Nothing Last, she was like, fuck that. I'm not going to be on it. I'm not going to have a picture of me looking young and beautiful on the record called Nothing Lasts. And he had to come up with another album title. And then uh, uh, I think Scott Byron, who brought the record to Zoo, um, was trying to get Bud Scapa, who worked at Zoo, to help him revive... uh, Interesting girlfriend there. Jim Rondinelli. And it was heartbreaking when AM dropped it. And I spent the next year of my life trying to pitch it and shop it to everybody who might listen to it, uh, along with Matthew's manager, along with two other people, Michael Crumper and Karen Glover, who both used to work at AM. Michael, at that point, had gone on to work at Atlantic um, and has a, a PR company called Missing Peace Group. Karen Glover is still at Hits. Uh, those guys were instrumental in, in working and trying to find an audience for the record. But Nevermind was released to the street about two or three weeks before this record, and it blew such a wide hole through modern pop radio. Uh, Z100... We play all the top, we play the top 100 songs, we play the top 10 hits, didn't get on um, uh, 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 the Nirvana record until like literally it was number one and they're like, shit, it's number one, we have to play it. Yeah. Um, And that, and so in the wake of that, people were more willing to listen to that kind of sound, I guess, or to, to hear guitars louder and to hear things rougher and scrappier. I think the record might have died if A&M had put it out because we had conviction from the people working the trenches like Karen and Michael uh, and Jeanette Sarabia, who was also in that um, department, Lauren Zalisco. But we didn't have the commitment of, from the people who spent the money. Uh, and in those days, you know, if you weren't willing to spend money for shelf space and to get something started on radio... It wasn't going to happen by itself. I look back on that record with such fond memories, and I wish those days were still here. I wish we could go back and record another one today. And as for Matthew Sweet's obsession with Winona Ryder at the time? It's a safe haven to have crushes on girls in movies or whatever, you know? It wasn't about talking to a movie star or anything, you know? And the song, in fact, I'm, I'm sure if we looked at the early tapes of it, it was called uh, Alone in the World. And as I remember it, Lloyd Cole came to, to me or we were chatting at a session and he said, you know, that song is kind of, uh, uh, kind of country. You should call it Winona. I remember it really well because it was Winona Ryder, not Winona, you know. And he's like, because you like that girl, Winona Ryder. And I was like, well, it's Winona. And, you know, I like her, but that's not, you know, really what the song is about. But I thought about it and I kind of thought, 
that's kind of a good idea. I should just call it Winona, you know? So it was really my fault that everybody thought it was about her because I took Lloyd up on this idea. It has that name, but it was really, I used it because it just sounded kind of country, you know? And uh, the song sounded kind of that way. And uh, so it was never when I wrote it a song about Winona Ryder, Winona Ryder, or my, uh, or an obsession with her. Funny thing is I did eventually uh, meet her when I was touring with uh, Soul Asylum and Dave Perner, she was his girlfriend and uh, the singer from Soul Asylum. And uh, we did a show, I think the Jayhawks were on it too. Uh, I think it might've been in Minneapolis or it was somewhere in the Midwest and she had come out to visit Dave. And so I actually met her like backstage and we chatted about it. And, you know, I was like, I wasn't writing a song about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but she understood, you know, what was going on. She was a smart, smart person. And, uh, I taught her how to play the song on acoustic guitar in the backstage. And uh, she actually came out. I don't remember if she played guitar or she did a little singing, but she actually came out on stage that day and appeared on Winona at a live concert while we were out on this tour. And uh, it's so funny because... I didn't remember we ever even had like a photo or something, but uh, my wife recently dug up a photograph from that day and I'm standing there looking at the camera, smiling and Winona's kissing me on the cheek <laughs> and it's so sweet. And it's like, Oh God, I want to give this photo to everybody now, you know, the songs that were more, uh, pickup line kind of songs like Girlfriend or Evangeline, you know, were forward looking. They were about, you know, finding someone to love or whatever. Um, occasionally, you know, like I Thought I Knew You is probably had a bit of a nastiness that I didn't usually write in that tone. So maybe that one, I got served papers or something, you know, <laughs> you know um, for divorce after I was the one that said I wanted to get divorced, you know, she sort of jumped on a lawyer <laughs> quicker, you know? Um, so I wasn't really expecting that. So there's that aspect to, I thought I knew you where it maybe hits a little bit closer to some, some uh, serious sentiments, but it was all mixed up. It was mixed up in my mind and how I felt. And however, um, I think that's why the album resonated so much with so many young people is everybody was trying to navigate those same feelings, the feelings of falling in love, the feelings of falling out of love, the feelings of dreaming of what it could be, you know, if things went away, you could imagine or whatever. Um, there were, there were many different feelings and, 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 Nothing Lasts, which was one of the, what we called the bonus tracks on the album, because we did it sort of in the 11th hour of the record. We did those three songs that we added 
we wanted to put out everything we did. You know, it was just kind of like we should have just left them <laughs> out or something. But that song, you know, shows a feeling about life where you can't stop change from always happening, you know, in life. And so, again, it's a thing that's much more general than just a divorce, you know. I definitely never thought of it as as a divorce record myself. I thought of it as a relationship record. Thank you for joining us for Magnet Classics, Episode 3, coming soon.